Welcome back to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast. My name is Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And we are back on, a, on another Monday, uh, continuing the conversation that we have been having, the conversations we typically have on Mondays. Uh, we're just bringing you along with us, and so we're glad you've joined us today. Um, we are a uh, father-son pastoral team serving uh, north of Boston on the border of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, and uh, we're, you know, kind of that same space as so many pastors are. We're in a, we're, we're in a uh, small to medium church, you know, doing our best to serve our, our uh, church family, serve our community, serve the Lord. And uh, yeah, so hopefully uh, you can uh, glean some information or a little insight into what it's like to be a pastor and what some of the things are that we talk about. Um, we, uh, we were chatting this week. Uh, we, um, there's something I wanted to introduce, I think, to the podcast. So if, you've been, idea, us, yeah. Yeah, if you've been with us for, I don't know, 18, 19, what are we on? Episode 20, I think now. Um, we, uh, I thought like, what other things could we add or what would make this better? Cause that insight, that's a thing pastors do a lot. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, uh, I thought like one of the things that is a challenge for the church and a challenge for people, maybe in my church, maybe yours is great at this. You know, those of you who are listening, um, is like understanding the, understanding some of the terminology. Um, I, I you know, we, you can, I think most Christians know that we develop our own internal language, right? We, ha- we, we dub it Christianese. Um, you know, you can kind of tell somebody's got some sort of faith background because they use the word blessed in a sentence. You know, we, you know these different things that you see. Blessed beyond, I, by, yeah. beyond what I deserve. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just, you know, you hear these, you know, you hear these phrases and it's kind of, you know, you're like, ooh, they might know, they may know Jesus based on that, that term, right? Um, but there are also there is also um, a, a set of vocabulary that pastors use behind you know when we're chatting with each other, um, and I thought like it'd be great to bring some of these theological terms and just introduce some every every episode we do we'll just bring you a theological term talk for a few minutes about what that means, and then go on to whatever the topic of the day is. So we're the theological um, term of the week. Wait a second. You're going to introduce this. Shouldn't there be like a deeper voiceover or maybe maybe a musical interlude that says, and now the theological term of the week or something like that? Yeah, I'll just cut that out and put music behind it later. It'll work. Yeah, Yeah, okay. All right. So if you're listening, here it is. The theological term of the week. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so what, what, what's the term you wanted to start with? Of all, like, if you're going to do this, this thing, like, if you're going to start a new segment and use a theological term, a beginning term, which term would you use? I think the perfect term is to use the word presuppositionalism or presuppositionalist. Ooh. Okay, so yes. some of you, your brain is already wrinkled because that is a really long It's a long word, word. yeah, which it is. Insight, we like long words. When we're, you know, pastors, we have these, the, you're going to get this. You're going to get a bunch of words that sound like just complex. Huge, Huge. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So presuppositionalism, tell me what this is. Okay, so presuppositionalism is actually, it's not necessarily a theology word as much as it's a philosophy word. And it is the philosophy of how I look at Scripture and how I look at my world. So a presuppositionalist says that uh, I must begin somewhere in understanding 
what Scripture is all about, or I must begin somewhere in understanding what truth is, and so I must begin in a presuppositionalist philosophy. I must begin with God. Okay, so let me see if I can follow you here. So you're saying that whenever I make an argument with somebody, um, there's got to be like a foundation to my argument, uh, uh, a starting point for my house, and everything else gets built upon that. And at some point, you get to the foundation, and past the foundation, you get to maybe some bedrock or you know some pillars or something like just that very, very, very core piece that kind of is the beginning point, and you have to assume that in order to have the rest of the conversation, correct? Right, absolutely. You, you have to begin somewhere. Yeah. Right? I mean, remember the old days, uh, you were in uh, biology class, and they were teaching evolution, and you were basically getting into an issue of what's the first thing, because, you know, um, there's sometimes the argument's made that, well, if... If the evolutionary stuff happened somewhere, where... What, what instigated it? What started it, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, of course, then you get back to the Big Bang, and then you get to, well, what made the Big Bang bang? Right, yeah. Right? And, and there's always, you always have to begin an argument, or, and we use the word argument, not like... Not like We're fighting a, on Facebook? An angry, ex- right, yeah. It's, it's more along the lines of making a statement that takes you to a conclusion... Right, so building a case, building of. a case, yeah. Yeah. yes. So, so, our argument as Christians begins with the reality that God exists. So, our presupposition, so presupposing, our our base idea is God exists; He's real. Right. It's yeah. the given. Yeah. Remember the old days? You were in geometry class. They were actually attempting to teach you logic. They would. They would begin the 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 math the problem math yeah. problem by saying given that side a is equal to side b right okay then you had to work d- out the rest of the problem and that part uh, i both re- i remember most clearly about uh geometry and also i hate it because i could be like i know the answer is four why do i have to write all this stuff down exactly but it is it, they're teaching the logic side of it and then eventually they got to those three buttons on the calculator and i still don't know what those were or what they did but that you know i do know yeah that that part i remember from from geometry that that you have the given and that with, based on that given statement you can work out the rest of the problem so for believers now this is tricky not all believers I think, start here, or, or like if they're going to be honest and they actually work their case back, not all believers start with given that God exists. No, actually, most believers, uh, especially especially folks who are really given to apologetics, you know, the folks that they want to prove the existence of God, and so they they point to all of those, remember all of those syllogisms that we learned, like because... Do we need to do syllogism next week? Maybe, I don't know. You know, the, the whole idea for... Well, let me give you an example, okay, right? Okay, sure, thanks. Okay, so the example is uh, since, since the world shows design, there must be a designer. Okay. That's a, that's a syllogism. Since the world shows design, there must be a designer, and that... That's actually an argument that's being used even in public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of intelligent design is being taught, and the concept is I can rationally prove that there must be a God by saying uh, the world has design, there must be a designer, the world has, uh, the world has 
order, there must be some, uh, there must be a primary order, orderly agent. So I'm working from my reason, which is something that we've been taught by basic Christianity from its Roman Catholic roots, going all the way back to a fellow named Thomas Aquinas. Right. It actually goes prior to Aquinas because this is a, a, a style of thought, a method that goes back to you know. That's true. Socrates yeah. Socrates yeah. and you know some yeah. other some other Western yeah. thinkers. The origin of Western thought. Exactly. Right. And what Aquinas does is he takes that Western thought and he he orders it and says, I, I can prove that God exists because. I can identify these these things in my existence. I can I, I can rationally determine what's going on in my world, and then I can conclude that uh, that and take you to where God is. So, so what we're talking about here then is a different basis, a, a different um, starting point that moves toward God exists so that you can then move toward the rest of the, you know, the rest of the story of God's redemptive work being right. the, so, the way we need. So um, our presupposition of God exists moves all of that work out because it changes. Since if I start from human reason, then it kind of starts from like, I'm God. Me. And I'm right. the one who makes the determination of what's real and what isn't. And since I'm the one who can observe this and, and decide, then I get to prove God exists. Therefore, you know, all of these things happen. Turns me into God, not God being God. And that's the error of, that's the error of uh, Aquinas. That's the error of scholasticism and the error of reason too. Um, it it says, it says that my reason is equal to everybody else's reason, and if I'm arguing from my reason, uh, then you know somebody else can mar- argue from their rational pers- pursuit too. Right, which kind of gets us to where we are culturally, where you can say that truth is my truth, this is your truth, this exactly. is good for you, it's not good for me. Yeah, yeah. But if you can start from a different place of, hey, God exists, I need you to know. <laughs> And because God exists, this is where we are. Right. And you even have individuals, atheists like uh, Bertrand Russell, mm-hmm. brilliant philosopher who tears Christianity apart because he says, he says that those things like intelligent design, you know, the reality of a designer or, or the reality of order doesn't point me to God. It points me to something other. Mm-hmm. But that's his, that's his presupposition. Bertrand Russell and every atheist begins with the position, there is no God. Therefore, yeah. Therefore, and then they argue from that point, and they can... Here's, here's the thing about presuppositionalism. Here's the thing about any one of those givens. You can argue to whatever point you want if you have your given, your presupposition agreed to. Mm-hmm. So if I if I'm up in, in an argument with an atheist and he's he gets me to agree that there is no God and I have to prove that there is a God from that foundation of there is none, I won't get there. He'll be able to work and make it work, make his philosophy work because he's beginning with there is no God. Right. Right. We're beginning with there is a God. And there's from a scriptural perspective. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, the chapter that says I, that I need to have faith, a belief in things that are unseen, and a belief 
in things that are hoped for. Mm-hmm. In the middle of that chapter, or the beginning of that chapter, really, verse 6 of it, it says, a very simple phrase that says, He that comes to God must first believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right. So really, that is our presupposition stated in Scripture. I believe there's a God. That's, that is the foundational point from Scripture. That is the foundations of faith. That's the foundations of all belief. Right. So I say, here's my presupposition. My presupposition is that God exists. Now I need to find out who that God is, mm-hmm. and I have, to defi- I have to understand what he expects of me. Sure. And when I grasp the, that point, when I grasp my presupposition, that drives me into an understanding of who the real and true God is. All right. So that's our point for the day. All right. Well, there you go. So you, hopefully you've been a little more educated. Hopefully you haven't fallen asleep at the wheel. Boom. And uh, <laughs> we are, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 you know, give us some feedback on this. We'll, we'll do a couple more of these, some, some, some terms that maybe you've heard before, but maybe don't quite have the definition too. Like there's a lot of those get tossed around. And, uh, and so we're going to try and clarify those over a future podcast. Just take a, just a few minutes to identify what they mean. And then move on for the rest with the rest of the uh, with the podcast. So there you go, presuppositionalism. It's the place in which you start your argument from. And as a believer, we start our we should start our arguments from given God exists, and then go on and have the conversation. Um, and uh, if you're having an, a discussion with somebody who does not have the same given, you have to keep tracing that back to this is where our disagreement lies. Exactly. Right. Now moving into uh, having, I think we're, we're having this conversation still on things we uh, share with young pastors. Um, and this might be one of the last ones on this conversation unless inspiration strikes us later in the week. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about now uh, together over the last well, month or so that we've had this, this arc going is this one particular topic, which is a bit controversial. And, and that's the topic of um, church operating as a business. I think that's one of those things that makes um, the average churchgoer and even a lot of pastors really uncomfortable because the church is not a business. The church is the family of God. Uh, and yet, if you, as a young pastor, walk into a church or begin to lead a faith community um, and don't acknowledge the business principles that help it flourish, then you're in for some challenge. Right. We've actually been putting this off, like you said, for a month. I mean, every, every podcast we, uh, we've been getting together, and it's like, okay, it's time for us to deal with this topic that the church is a business, and then, you know, we'll come up with something other great thing to deal with. And I, like you said, it's really hard. I, I think part of the difficulty there is that uh, college, seminary, they don't teach you to run a church as a business. They, they teach you to be a theologian. Mm-hmm. Right and, and a counselor sometimes a counselor yeah but their their concept is we're going to give you all of the theological tools to be a great great pastor and they give you some really really great theological tools to be a great theologian mm-hmm. but the hard thing is when you can take those tools and then put them into 
a place where you can break down the scripture, feed the sheep, care for the sheep, minister to the sheep, move them in the right direction, and at the same time know that tomorrow there's going to be a, enough money to keep the lights on in the house, in the building. Yeah, and that is a challenge. And it's actually something that informed me. I have this, there are so many things that are interesting being a, uh, a pastor who is the son of a pastor. Um, and I think this is one of those areas, right? Because I grew up seeing all of this. Uh, I, I remember, you know, growing up and seeing the off the church office in our house in one parsonage, and and you having, you know, in that very small church, you're there on the little word processor typing out the bulletin every week, and you're creating the budget, and you are, uh, you know, you, all of these things are kind of on your shoulder to try and help run in this very tiny church. And in other churches, you have to work and lead in, in other ways. And I remember thinking that that was such an important piece of what it is to be a pastor. And so it influenced my seminary choice. Um, and when I went to pursue my master's in divinity, I chose a seminary that was going to also teach me leadership principles and business principles. My undergrad, I took, you know, my, 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 um, my primary uh, major was in pre-seminary Bible, um, but I also took a minor in organizational communications. And then when I moved into seminary, I had this um, program designed to also help in like nonprofit leadership and other areas too. Yeah. But that's something that I saw and recognized as a need and pursued. But that's not necessarily something that's told to young pastors when they're coming through. Like, you know, and so you end up with a lot of great theologians who don't know how to balance books. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's several sides to being a business, right? I mean, there's the financial side. We've talked about that just a little bit. And I think that every, every young pastor should know how to read a spreadsheet and a balance sheet, and they should, they should know what they're looking for and looking through the numbers. Uh, so there's the financial side of it. Uh, there's the operational side of it. Um, there's the, uh, there's the, personnel management side of it, the, mm -hmm. and and there's even the resource management side of it. So you, you really have four different aspects of this small business. And think of it this way, if, if and this is, this is an alien concept to a lot of people, um, pastoral ministry is very entrepreneurial. Hmm. You, are, you are stepping into an organization or a, a ministry where, uh, just like a small business, where you need to make sure that everything operates and everything is actually functioning. Don't care how big the church is, there's always a necessity to make sure that everything is operational and everything is functioning. If, if you're in a church of 50, that's more of an issue. If you're in a church of 50,000, uh, you probably have people to do that. Mm -hmm. But most likely, if you're just stepping fresh out of seminary, you're not stepping into the pulpit of a church of 50,000. And even if you are stepping into one of those uh, corporate churches, uh, you need to know who actually is involved in that. You need to know who... You bear some responsibility. You need to be able to have the conversation with that executive pastor or that operations pastor or whatever so you know what's going on. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. 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 So four areas. I'm going to handle the finance one last, right? Okay. The first one I want to talk to or address is this whole idea of, um, of just the management of the operation. Okay. And probably one of the things that young pastors don't cr grasp is... Uh, Churches are more than churches are more than we come on Sunday and everything works fine. 
Uh, operations means that you know how it's going to work fine, and you know that you have the right resources and things plugged in. So, so operations, I think, begins really as a vision caster. And that, that's a term, I realize it's a very 90s term, <laughs> uh, but then I was, you know, I was pastoring in the 90s, so that might Something some stick, of yeah. <laughs> uh, being a vision caster means you know, where you know where you want to take your church. You know, what, you know what your expectations are of your congregation. You know what you want to actually get out of them and what you want to see built into them. You are a shepherd. Well, a shepherd's job was, in a sense, was to take his sheep to where the green grass is. If I go back to uh, Old Testament Israel, for mm -hmm. example, um, I, I'm going to move my sheep twice a year. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to do is, is in, the, uh, in one season, I'm going to have my sheep in lower, lower lands, lower territory, because that's where the weather is warm and the grass is green. And I'm going to take my sheep there. But in the colder season, or, or there's a second season, and that's where you take your sheep up into the mountains, because that's where the better grass is. So you're going... You're going to move your sheep. You're going to take them where the better grass is. That isn't just a, that isn't just a, a momentary moment. Or a, when the shepherd says one day, "Ah, I, th I think it's a good day to move the sheep uh, up into the mountains." Mm -hmm. He actually needed to understand what was going on around him. He needed to understand the weather. He needed to understand how good the grass was. He needed to understand how well the water was holding out, and he needed to know that his sheep were able to make the trek. Mm -hmm. So as a pastor operating a church, there is an operational aspect of saying, where am I taking my sheep to feed them and to grow them? What is the best thing for them? And, and you, have to know, you have to know your congregation, but you also have to know what's going on around your world you have to be up to date on on um, so many things. Like here we are sitting in this fantastic studio mm -hmm. that uh, one of, we're just blessed here. We have great folks who just have a handle on how to make this work. Uh, but as pastors, we needed to know how it worked too, and we needed to have a vision for it. We needed to express it a little bit, and we know how to reach people. Right. Right. We're we're on a podcast right now. Mm -hmm. We uh, we did a we did something yesterday in our church that's probably going to be cut as a podcast and show up yes. as a benefit. It's like a special episode. You'll see it. Yeah, yeah, a very special episode <laughs> of, and 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 that's gonna you'll you'll hear that we did that with our congregation. We had people yesterday asking us the very serious question: What's a podcast and how do I get to it? Mm -hmm. And. and this is a tool that a lot of our folks just have no handle on. And you might be in a smaller church. Your pastor may have no idea how to do a podcast. He should learn. Yeah, because it's, it's a different pond to fish in, and we can learn these things. Yeah. It's a business tool. Yeah. Right? So operations means that I know, I know how to minister to a specific group of people. I'm not just opening my Bible and reading the first thing that comes into my head, I have a plan for feeding my church. I have a plan for ministering to my church. I have a plan for making them better. I have a plan for 
developing new ideas and and expanding into the community and so on. So there's an operational side of business of this business that you need to have a handle on. It's not just doing the same thing every day in and out. I think the second thing is that whole personnel issue that we talked about. Yeah, I, I joke about this with we have I have friends who are part of the church who are in management in different companies in the area, and uh, we we laugh a lot about how like they get the they have the privilege of just being able to tell somebody do this or I don't pay you, <laughs> and um, if I, I you know I I joke a lot with volunteers here at church like if you know they do something just wonderful and exceptional which they do so frequently I'll joke like hey I'm gonna give you a hundred percent raise this was so good. And it goes from 0% to 0%, right? Like yes. that $0 to $0, right? Because um, everybody, you know, we have very, a very small paid staff here at the church. And that's the case, percentage-wise, that's the case with almost every church. You're, um, most of the people who are doing ministry in your church are, are people who volunteer to do it, um, which makes things different. Like the idea of nonprofit management and nonprofit um, leadership is different than for-profit management and leadership. And the difference, there's a big difference between volunteer management versus employee management. And having some of the, that perspective on how to lead people and how to do it effectively and how to communicate a vision and how to bring people along when they have the option to just say, nah, or just to not show up, that's helpful. You know, it's, it's important. And, and so definitely um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a tool that a pastor should have and develop. And I think a lot of pastors do this um, over time accidentally. Uh, you you know you can fall into this you know and but I think my observation is that pastors then end up um, depending on their personality either being micromanagers and having to do every single task or have their finger in every single task and they can't trust their people um, because they're not really equipped to manage well um, or they end up in a place where they're just completely oblivious to what's going on because they don't know how to manage people right. Um, and if you are not intentional about developing the skill set to 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 manage well, you can end up in either of those places. And so um, it's important, I think, if you're going to if you're going to lead well as a pastor, to actually put some effort into figuring out how to lead your flock. Yeah, yeah, and and personal wise, it's you have to put the time in. And the time that you put in is being as a listener, an observer. Um, those those go a long way. Great great story. Had a church in uh, that we pastored in Vacation Bible School. There was this one woman who taught fourth grade VBS, and she was also teaching fourth grade Sunday school. So it was interesting. I was watching her work with with the fourth graders in VBS, and she was awful. <laughs> oh my she was terrible she was she was mean to the kids she i mean the kids loved her right the kids absolutely loved her but you know kids are funny that way that they'll they'll love anybody that shows them attention and she was just showing them like negative attention but it was still attention she she just oozed discomfort in what she was doing and uh Interesting, after VBS, a uh, couple of weeks later, I said to her, tell, tell me, I said, is, is teaching fourth grade something that you enjoy? And her response was, well, to tell you the truth, Pastor, I hate kids. That's why my husband and I never had any. And I said, well, 
why are you teaching Sunday school then? And she said, well, somewhere along the line, somebody said that they needed help. And so I said, I'd come and I'd help. But she said, I really, I really don't like children. So the next year, Vacation Bible School rode along and I said, hey, let's put her in the kitchen. <laughs> let's find a different fourth grade teacher. And of course, the response from my, from my VBS leader was like, oh, I don't know if we'll have any. I said, let's just check around. And, but let's move her into the kitchen. And, and we moved her into the kitchen. We found another fourth grade teacher. Fourth grade class exploded size-wise. Uh, and she absolutely loved working in the kitchen because she was doing something for VBS because she thought that she should. And, but she didn't have to deal with the kids that she hated. She was able, <laughs> she was able to take care of just making food and knowing that the kids were going to eat it. And she was fine with that. Yeah. It's part of the business of being a pastor is identifying that your volunteers are not all great at what they do. Or even what they've volunteered for. Or even what they volunteered for. And there are times when you just have to say, how about if we find a different role? Um, and, and my recommendation, by the way, on that is have a role in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, it's, I, it's kind of like a replacement theory. Uh, never just fire somebody. Uh, just it, it's, it's easier to say, I, need, I have this need over here. I think you'd be better off doing that role. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's part of the business of being a pastor yeah. is personnel management. And it's also like herding cats because the, the truth of the matter is uh, I could have gone to that person who absolutely hated kids and her response may have been, but I think that I should keep doing my class, te- keep teaching this class. Right. And at that point you're like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? So. Yeah. 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 There's uh there is a. With a lot of these things, there is a um, there's a science to it, and then there's an art to it. And I think that you know, being a good pastor, you kind of have to figure out a way to walk both of those things, like to know the principles, um, to to know how all of this, all of these things should work, but also just know people really well and know how to kind of craft uh, um, different experiences and different types of encouragement, and then sometimes different types of like hard words to, to just shape, help shape somebody. And, and I don't know, ultimately it's, it's ultimately a discipleship process. Um, you're, you're trying to help people, um, grow in their walk with the Lord and in the way that they can encourage their, their church family. Um, but there's, there's some, there's some skill there that, that needs to be applied in order to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads to another business aspect. And that is that there's, there's analytics. Hmm. Now, people hate this idea. They hate the idea that... If we were doing a YouTube right now, that would be how we would title it so that people would click on it. It's true. People hate this one thing about pastoral ministry. <laughs> yeah, and then get Thousands all the clicks. Thousands of clicks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, does that work with podcasts? I don't know. I'll find out. No, I won't. I'm not going to do it. No, okay. All right. Well, we buried <laughs> it deep enough in here that you know, no <laughs> I won't manipulate you. It. Yeah, they're already here. Right. So, uh, so the analytics uh, come into play, and... and People don't necessarily know the analytics. A lot of pastors do. A lot of studies have been done. There's lots of lots of figures out there. I think a lot of my figures uh, came from an organization called Sun Life, which started out as a youth ministry. And I think they still are a youth ministry, but in the process of doing that, they, 
they actually started analyzing churches and how churches function, and they started doing just insights into how how we use our money and how we use our time and our effort. And there are analytics. There there are things that uh, that you can actually sit down and look at um, look at and evaluate ministries and say these aren't working because they just aren't hitting analytical norms. Hmm. And and that's hard for some people to grasp because if I say they're not hitting analytical norms, the response usually is, "Well, pastor, what what does where does the Holy Spirit fit in on this?" Right, and right. It, it gets, you you can spiritualize even more. The one that I've heard the most is, "If only one person gets saved, it's worth it, isn't it?" Yeah, You're yeah. Like, well, can't you know that that's such a that's, that's tricky. That's that's a that's a scary trap because you can say like. You know, if only one person gets saved, then this fifty thousand dollar investment is worth it, isn't it? Because you know, ultimately, it's just money, and they have another person in the kingdom. And look at all of the things that can come from this one person who has been changed by Jesus. You know, Billy Graham was changed by just one person who was willing to invest in him, right? Um, yeah, and, and I always think of the flip side of Alice's Restaurant. Okay. The album of the the, the record album yeah. Alice's. Yeah, the he goes on, he gets a job working for the defense department and he makes a multi-million dollar item uh that uh, the defense department has given him money for cuz it's a truly great defense project item and uh they take it out on the ocean and they push it off of the back of a ship. And it goes into the water, and all of the de- defense department people say, "Well, what does it do?" And you say, "He says it makes bubbles." And that—that that to me is what I hear when someone says, "And now everybody's going to shut this off." Because here's my thinking: If you tell me we just spent all of that money and one person got saved, wouldn't God have saved that person? Mm. And there are better ways of using our finances. I'm not saying... So you're a Calvinist for sure. We oh, finally identified yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, you know, it's not like it's not like I'm saying we should not spend money on evangelism and we shouldn't spend money, but we should be wise right. in this how is the we idea, spend right? it. And I think that's what, that's what we're trying to get at here. There's just good stewardship. There's good money management principles. And if you know those well, then you'd be like, okay, yeah. $50,000 is nothing if it means somebody else knows Jesus and has their eternity with him. But what if we spent that $50,000 over in this other space and 300 people came to know Jesus? Then which one would you rather do? Exactly. Or what if we spent 100 bucks and somebody came to know Jesus? What, why do we need to spend $50,000 on this particular project? And then you get to kind of tap deeper into why somebody wants that project to run. And these are all these leadership ideas that come into place, like, you know, stewardship management, proper investment of resources, um, knowing just the value of things. And, you know, like all of those, all of those pieces that come into good business um, strategy, if you have that under your belt as a pastor, then you can then have those conversations with people and you say, hey, yeah, that's, that's great. But I also know that this other project, which costs, you know, 10% of this one that we're currently doing is also effective. Let's try it. So I was in a church that spent 20 to 30% of its annual budget on its youth ministry. 
Now, it had a great youth ministry. There's no question about it. It was effective. It was outreaching. It was life-changing. It was getting a lot of money, and, you know, it probably deserved all of that money. But along the line, we started a mother's ministry. And it was, it was kind of interesting because it was, it was like two or three mothers, and they said, we, we just want to meet like every other week. We'll meet for breakfast. We'll have some children's, children's, you know, uh, children's program in the basement taken care of by some, by some volunteers. Uh, they went out into the local parks. They, uh, they printed up uh, a group of uh, just a bunch of invitation-type flyers from the church. So, you know, we, we may have had 20 bucks in paper and ink that went out. They went out. They, uh, they handed out these flyers. Uh, we had, I think the first week, we had like 12 moms with their children. Mm-hmm. We eventually had 30 moms. We couldn't take any more. We, were, we had more more moms and their kiddos. They had like a hundred children in our basement having being taught Bible lessons while their moms were eating breakfast and fellowshipping and learning how to be godly moms, even though they were most of them were most of them were unsaved. Most of them didn't come to our church at all. I think that split, that thing split and there was another church that was now hosting our overflow and from that, we started getting families coming to our church. We had like four or five families that we were adding to the church. And somebody said to me, oh, I, I think uh, you, w- that that ministry needed needed an expense. They needed something covered. And there was somebody that looked at me and said, well, I don't know that we can cover that. It's not in the budget. And I said, this has provided more people for our church's ministry than our youth ministry that's costing us X dollars a year. Controversial. Fund the ministry. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, we're in the business of people and growing God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Does a youth ministry grow God's kingdom? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty invested in one of those. Yeah, yeah. But the immediate result of that ministry to mothers was outrageous. It was not just bringing me, uh, it wasn't just putting children or young people, high schoolers, into our church. It was bringing entire families. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a one. It wasn't, we weren't getting one individual for every dollar. It was more like we were getting five individuals for every dollar because it was mom, it was dad, and it was all of their kids. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you can manage your resources well, and if you understand if you understand how to do all of that, then you can make those determinations. But you can also step back and say, like, okay, well, now we have now we have two effective ministries, um, and this one is this one's running at this budget level, and this one's running at this budget level, and you understand how business works, and so you can either be at this place of zero sum, like some some sometimes if you. If you're not understanding like growth and, and and the ways that that all of these investments work, you can just say like, all right, I have I have a hundred thousand dollars in my budget. Um, youth ministry takes twenty thousand of that, um, and now I have this new ministry that is going to cost me another thousand dollars, but I don't have it, and so I'm not going to fund it. That's one way of looking at. But the if you're looking at it from this smart, you know, economics of scale idea here, you're also saying, well, now I have another like. Now I have another dozen families who are here. 
um, if, if two of them tithe, then that extra thousand dollar expenditure is nothing. And I can now fund multiple wonderful ministries that are going to impact the kingdom and help it grow. And again, like this, this conversation feels uncomfortable because we're talking about like, where does tithe money go and where does, um, and, and, and how do I operate a budget and how do I spend money on some things and not on others? And, and some people step back from that. And it feels a little bit icky. I, I don't love it. I don't like talking about money personally. Um, but at the same time, I need to understand how all of this works because it's my responsibility as a pastor, as an elder, as, as, a, as, a, as one of the leaders of my church to know how to actually use all of that money that people sacrificially give to the kingdom in the way that is most effective. It's, it's a burden and a responsibility and a privilege that as a pastor, like, you, have to, you have to prayerfully apply all of that giving in the most effective way. Exactly, which goes to the finance side of it. And yeah, pastors need to know what's going on as far as the finances are concerned. They need to know income, not where that, not where the individual's income is, but they need to know the bottom line and they should know the budget. They should have an idea of how the money is spent in the church, which means that as a young pastor, you need to know how to read a a spreadsheet, a, a financial sheet. You should know where the money's going and what, what it costs, and you should have some grasp of even balance. Yeah, basic accounting stuff. Yeah, some kind of a some kind of concept where you can actually look down through and see where what's being spent, uh, but also if is your spending in balance with, with what's going on. I, I have been in churches and more controversy, right? I've been in churches that are great missionary churches. But the missionary budget is 50% of the church, and the Sunday school is starving. Hmm. And you can only plant churches as long as you are planting your own church. You can only grow your missions ministry as long as you are growing your church's ministry. And if... If your missionary budget is out of out of whack, out of balance with the rest of your church, then eventually you're going to come to that very hard moment in time where you close your doors and all of your missionaries are now trying to find other support. Right, because you can't afford to keep the church open because all of your it's you've invested your money at the wrong point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So pastors need to have some concept of balance. They have to have some idea of where the finances are going and, uh, and where things are just out of whack with, uh, with the, the common culture. Yeah. And one of the things that has helped me in this, because I, I understand finance and I understand business, but I don't love talking about money. It's not my favorite thing. Um, is I've just learned, like, I've learned enough to know what I'm looking at and, and where things should go and what they should look like. But I also have learned enough to know what I don't know. And, and so, you know, it's one, of those, it's one of those pieces where you have to start building in a trusted team around you who are much better at certain things than you are. I mean, this, is, this is just basic principle. Like you can't, you can't do all of the things really well. And um, with that leadership idea in mind that you can't do 100% of the jobs in your church well, um, some 
some people would say, all right, well, if I'm excellent in this area, but I stink in this other one, then I need to make the place where I stink better. So if I'm an excellent theologian, but I can't manage my own checkbook, then I need to make sure that I can go out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply all of this effort into making me a better financial wizard. And others, though, would say, like, and where I would be on this is instead of saying that, I would say, I need to, I need to be able to balance my own checkbook. That's just basic life skill. Um, I need to, but I need to invest enough in this mathematical side or in this um, financial side to know what I'm looking at and know what I'm talking about and understand the language of somebody who's an expert and be able to hold them accountable, but not invest any more in that because it's a weakness and it's okay. I just need to staff to my weakness. And I, would, I, am, I am a much better servant to my congregation if I go back and I invest more in my strength. So if I'm already a good communicator and I'm adequate with financial stuff, I am better, you know, business principle. I am better and I will serve my community better if I make my communication skills even better. And I allow somebody who is an expert on the financial side where I have a weakness to come in and take that role. And that's part of the concept of the church as a business. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's putting the right people around you. It's, it's understanding yourself. It's understanding the situations in your church. It's a business. And it, it's, it's, it's sausage making <laughs> at its finest. Yeah. Which is why you don't talk about it. It's why we don't. It's why we waited four or five episodes to even talk about it here. Exactly. Because it's a business. And it, it, there are days when uh, the business side has, is just really, really difficult. And, uh, you know, I, my, one of my favorite parts of the business, I, I love the vision casting side. I love the idea of, of making the plan of what my congregation needs and where I'm going to take them. And uh, in some ways, I love the, analy- the analytical side because it kind of addresses where my vision's going to go. Sure, it helps inform the vision. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the money side, you know, I, I, re- I review it. I know it. Um, I've done it. You know, a lot of, uh, I don't know if a lot of you guys have had that as far as pastors are concerned, but, you know, I think that almost every pastor of a small church has just crunched those numbers, built them out, figured out what needs to be spent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and then have your deacons question whether that's actually where they should be spent. So. <laughs> yeah, some some experiences are universal. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are all pieces. I think one of the last ones to think about in, in this idea of the business, we'll call it the business side of church. So like, I, I think like church, church as its own. This is where people get. This is where people can start making the argument. Um, Church as its own is not solely a business. It, 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 is a, it is a faith community. It is a family of believers who are gathering together in its local expression, a family of believers who are gathering together to apply their spiritual gifts, to disciple one another and impact the kingdom for the cause of Christ. That's what, that's what a church is. That's what it does. It worships, it encourages, it disciples. Those are the, those, it, it, it evangelizes. Um, but it also the business piece needs to underpin all of that to be able to do all of those other pieces as well. And so that's kind of where we're getting at in here. Um, but I think one of the last pieces of this, this, 
this business side that pastors should give thought to and invest in and think about is that a church endures beyond the people who show up to church, the service this week. Yes, yes. Hopefully. Yeah. If yeah. you do this, uh, if you do all of these things well, then, you know, we're coming up, I think, was it soon? I can't this remember. This next year. Next year is 100, 100 years, years that our church has existed. Exactly. No one here was there, was here. No one who goes to our church now was here when it opened its doors. But there were a group of people over the generations who have invested carefully and sometimes not so carefully in this this organization organism and it's so it exists and we're in a love we're in a lovely building that drives us crazy because you have this thing back and forth of like sometimes great decisions were made on the enduring nature of this organism and sometimes poor choices were made uh in in the process of this um, but it's wise for the leader of the church and its and their team to think about to make decisions based on the fact that people are coming after us. Right. And so one of the things that uh, we do here at Marsh is we actually have a theme concept that underpins what we're doing here because discipleship is key. It's, it's not about us. It's always about others, but not even others in our generation. It's about the next generation. It's, it's about multiplying forward. Mm-hmm of being able to make sure that the the tenets that we believe, but also the buildings, the possessions, everything that God has given to us is stewarded to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I have to say, a lot of churches, we're, we're approaching 100. Um, there are a lot of churches that go through great difficulty between year 100 and 140, because they need to rethink why it is that they exist. And it's kind of a rough moment. It's a rough moment to be sure that you are planning the future, that you're entrusting others with that power yeah. to, uh, to move on. And I've seen this done well. And I have examples of this done well, and I have examples of this done poorly. And unfortunately, the examples of it done poorly far outnumber the examples of it done well. Right, because what often what it often looks like is a church will become comfortable, continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. Eventually, everybody who was young and had young children all grow up. The young children move away, and the church ends up in this space where everybody's elderly, and nobody has come behind, and the the building has become too expensive to maintain because decisions were always made in the present and not considering the future. And, and eventually the church has to fold and tone, turn over all of its assets to some missions organization or some other young church plant that's coming in. Hopefully, you know, hopefully a young church plant that's coming in so it can kind Not of a theater group. rebirth itself. Right, yeah, or, or a bar. I, I was visiting um, friends in Pittsburgh, and they took us to this great like bar restaurant that was in an old church building and it was a gorgeous space, you know, all this stained glass and we're sitting there like enjoying a meal together, like, you know, in a place where, you know, like the choir used to sit and it was simultaneously wonderful and heartbreaking. Yeah. That's sad. Um, uh, because and if you're, if you travel through new England, you'll see all of these beautiful white, you know, country church buildings that are art galleries. Mm-hmm. True. Um, it's true because 
the church didn't have a forward vision. And yeah, on the on the flip side of that, um, there was a small church near where I used to live in Pennsylvania, and they were they were experiencing this this the beginnings of this decline. And they brought in a young pastor who was a gifted communicator, and they gave him the permission to make changes. And they actually continued to give him the permission to make changes. And they supported that, even though it was painful and difficult. And they began to make decisions based on a long-term, multi-generational mindset. And that church went from a church of 150 people to 2,500 people. And that's not what it's all about, but it kind of, like, there's this... There is also this statement that I heard once from a mega church pastor that, you know, we count people because people count, <laughs> and, yes. um, which I kind of love because that guy likes to do all these little like one line snippets. But the idea behind that is, yeah, like it shouldn't all be about the numbers, but also shouldn't more people know Jesus and shouldn't more people be discipled? And if we're doing this well, shouldn't we be going out into Jerusalem and Judea first and actually making sure that this message grows and expands and continues. And, um, you know, your church should be doing that. Your, your church should be thinking about how it can expand and how it can grow. And it's a wonderful thing when a church thinks about the next generation and the one that follows it and makes decisions now that benefit that. And that can be something as simple as, um, we were talking about this before we went on, went on air, you know, it can be something as simple as when your roof leaks, not just throwing another you know, set of shingles on top of an already bad set and saying, well, that's going to last us 15 years and we'll all be gone. And we say, no, let's do like the more expensive thing now because we can and make this something that lasts so that the next generation doesn't have to deal with it because they're going to have other things to deal with. And uh, it's just wisdom. We're in the middle of, well, we're a little, bit ways, a little ways through a capital campaign in our church. And the majority of the things in that capital campaign are really boring. Right. Um, They're not really eye catchers by any means. No, no. no. It's like, you know, like physical plant stuff that isn't really like the kind of thing that it's hard to get people to rally behind new air conditioning units, Um, especially in New England where most houses don't have them. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a challenge, but it's also one of those things like if you invest properly because somebody didn't prior to us, um, you know, generations ago when all of these things were first installed, it's like this crazy, strange patchwork of whatever was cheapest. And now we're suffering from that. Um, and so you're trying to make decisions that are going to help generations beyond us not have to deal with it. And uh, yeah, it's just those are the things that like it's important to think through as as a leader. Uh, how do we manage these resources really well? And I think that is our responsibility as pastors. We need to be great theologians who can dive into the scriptures and parse out what's going on and be able to communicate what the Holy Spirit is doing um, and what God is doing through his word and put that in a place where the person who's in my pew can apply it to their life. That's huge. And most pastors, I would say, can do that pretty well. But we also need to make sure that our church endures beyond us. Exactly. We are we're called to steward this family and shepherd this family and make sure that it continues. And that shepherding thing is more than just more than just being good, have a good bedside manner at a hospital or, or being able to, you know, host families over for dinner. That shepherding piece is also making sure that you're making the hard business decisions to make sure that the church as an organization can continue to thrive after you're gone. Right. So here's, here's kind of a summary idea. And, um, 
at the same time being a summary idea, it also pushes this uh, maybe out of just conversations about pastors and, and actually puts some pressure on your on the congregation. If you're a, I would assume most of you are members of a church somewhere, and, and you have a pastor. Um, your pastor is, I hope, skilled in his business. And, and I think that he should know what he's about. And I think one of the difficulties here is trusting your pastor to be a good, to, to know his business and to be pursuing the things that should be pursued in your local church. And, uh, you, you know, you don't have to give him, you don't have to be yes man, you don't have to give him carte blanche, but you have to give him the benefit of his experience, the benefit of his knowledge, and the benefit of his desire to do his work well. And when churches and pastors agree to do the uncomfortable, to step out of the things that we've always done because we've done them for a hundred years, and step into these are the things that we need to do if we're going to be here for another hundred years, at that point, churches grow. Mm-hmm. And that's grasping and understanding the meaning of the church as a business. Yeah. Well, there you have it. I, I, I think this kind of topic is the one that lends itself to good conversation. And so if you've been challenged by this, um, a place to pop in and, and have a conversation with it is, is in our Facebook group. It's also, though, you know, the kind of thing that's worth having a conversation over coffee or, or, or dinner. Um, and uh, so, so hang out with your pastor. I'm sure they'd love that. Um, chat with them about this. Say, hey, I heard this on a podcast. What's it like? Can you explain to me like what how how like church's business works for you versus what my experience's business is? You may be able to provide something to your pastor um, that would be a joy. You might have you might like trip over a spiritual gift that you didn't realize you had that will make your church better, um, and you may get some insight even into your own business because of the experience your pastors had. Um, it's a cool conversation to have, um, and so it's worth pursuing. Uh, but thanks for tuning in with us. We will uh, we'll be back with you uh, hopefully next week with, with more Inside the Pastor's Study. Bye now. You've been listening to Inside the Pastor's Study podcast hosted by Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Cover art by Caitlin Gallagher. Music by Sammy Kay. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.